Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded. But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh. Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. Our pal Noel is on adventures. They call me Ben. We're joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deccant. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. Uh, how's, it, how's it going, Matt? I gotta say, I still love the lighting in your bunker. Yeah, the lighting is pretty good. There's no light except for this tiny one here that mimics sunshine which is nice <laughs> can feel like i'm outside uh getting at least some kind of exposure rather than being in this room and not going mad i'm not going mad everything's fine um if things are well right how, how are they going in, in your neck of the woods uh yeah thanks for asking uh they're they're going all right um uh been a little isolated part of that self-imposed and part of that um you know, part of part of that due to other reasons, but everything will work out. It's strange because I was thinking about this earlier uh, this weekend, how quickly, um, I mean, I talk about all the time, how quickly things become normal for populations of human beings. And one of the things that's interesting is the, um, the adaptation of friend groups. Uh, it's interesting. I've noticed this on a lot of like virtual hangout platforms, especially the ones 
that have uh, limits, right, over how many people can be in X or do Y. And I think it's pretty instructive from a, a social dynamics, um, you know, from, from that perspective. Like, peek behind the curtain, folks. Uh, here on this show, we use uh, Zoom because it has, it has a lower lag than a lot of stuff, at least for us, and it doesn't have a time limit. So, so I, I think it's interesting to see how people adjust in the face of a, an infection that is probably not going away. I've got some scary research on that we might save for our next COVID update. Uh, but you and I have been thinking about other global diseases, and that's, that's something we're talking about today. Yes, we are exploring one of the most prominent conspiracy theories that has existed over you know, the last few decades it is a belief that you will see repeated all across the internet. Um, it found global popularity for a time there, and it kind of remains as this like uh, unspoken truth within a lot of communities, especially on the internet in the modern day right now. It's a really twisted thing. It's a twisted tale that concerns a disease, but not the one that most of us are concerned with right now. Right. Yeah, we're talking about HIV today. Um, also, uh, you know, you'll hear it interchangeably described as AIDS. They're not quite the same thing. But in short, our question today is, how did so many people come to believe that the United States purposely created AIDS and why? So to answer this question, we have to start the way we always do with what we know for sure. So here are the facts. HIV is a virus, like the coronavirus. HIV is short for human immunodeficiency virus. It causes the condition known as autoimmune deficiency syndrome, or AIDS. So you don't get AIDS, you get HIV, and then it causes you to have AIDS. Nowadays, millions of people, millions of people have died from uh, the syndrome caused by HIV. But luckily, as we're recording this now in 2020, uh, there isn't a cure, but there are improved therapies and preventative measures that have put the death rate in a state of deep decline since it peaked back in around 2005. Yeah. So let's talk about an area of HIV and AIDS that has a lot of uh, misinformation about it on the internet, and that is how the virus is transmitted. We do know that a lot of bodily fluids are the general way that it gets transmitted. We're talking blood, breast milk, um, se semen and vaginal secretions, uh, and so on down, down the line there. And unlike the coronavirus, you cannot get infected with HIV by that good old-fashioned kissing. Uh, you can't get it by shaking hands. You can't get it by hugging uh, or sharing food or beverages the way you can uh, get the coronavirus. But, the, but the, we do have a makeout warning, though, right? Yes. You have to be very careful about sores in the mouth of uh, someone you are deep kissing is the way it has been described. Uh, French kissing, as most of us know it. Uh, so just be careful because if you have a if there is an open sore in someone's mouth that can transmit this uh, virus. If you have an open sore as well, or if you have, you know, bleeding gums because of the gum disease, gingivitis or something. I, I just wanted to mm -hmm. drop a gingivitis line in there from the toothpaste commercials. You're absolutely right, Matt. You know, um, 
In comparison to other viruses, uh, you would think that HIV has one huge limiting factor. It's not airborne, right? It's it's fluid transmitted. Uh, so you would think that, hey, this is not some, you know, this is not near as easy to spread. But there's a problem because HIV has a very long, um, I don't know if it's right to call it an incubation rate, but you can get HIV, a person can get HIV and be contagious, be a carrier and transmitter of it for a decade, 10 years or more before they exhibit any sign of infection, before they have any reason to think they should go get tested. And when they are out and about, when they are, you know, living their lives, symptom-free, asymptomatic, they can infect, what, dozens more people one way or another. And then those people, of course, rinse and repeat, go on to infect dozens of others and so on and so on until it becomes a global problem. HIV attacks your immune system. It invades our cells, it invades the cells of your immune system, and then it hacks them in a in a very uncool way to say the least it reprograms them to stop being your immune cells that you know love and trust and become factories to just make more hiv if you don't get treatment then what happens is the number of immune cells in your body they dwindle you know like a not all at once, but kind of like a, a a dying town in the rural Midwest or something. If the body cell, if the immune cells are people, there are fewer and fewer in the population. And then, as as your body uh, is deprived of these and loses them, that uh, then autoimmunodeficiency syndrome can kick in. And once that happens, a person can be susceptible to a wide range of possible infections some that would ordinarily not be fatal, right? Your body has to work so much harder and your immune system has been so weakened that it cannot fight back effectively. Yeah, and and this is where the coronavirus really does come back in because it makes it that much more dangerous for anyone out there who who is HIV positive um, or who has autoimmune deficiency. So it really, it's a scary thing right now. Um, having this pandemic going around um, for those people. And, and the other thing about HIV is that it isn't just one thing, uh, one particular thing. It is consistently changing and mutating. And it's believed to be, like HIV itself is believed to be a mutated version of a different virus that was, it's called the simian immunodeficiency virus or SIV, S-I-V. And this is the same it does the same kind of thing, only it attacks primates, uh, apes, monkeys. Right, and that's important. That'll matter in just a second, especially as we dive into the history of this uh, of this disease. So AIDS first gained public attention in the 1980s, and there were so many misconceptions about what this was and how it spread. For example, some people, including medical experts early on thought it was only a disease encountered by people engaging in same-sex relationships or, you know, same-sex 
intimate encounters, right? And then other people thought it only targeted minorities because both African-Americans and people in the LGBT communities were uh, seemed to be acquiring this more often than other communities. One thing was for sure. It was initially seen as a terminal condition. And, and you know, it, early treatments were almost as damaging as the infection itself. Luckily, back in the 1990s, so long ago now, doctors shifted to a new treatment program. They started using combinations of drugs simultaneously. They called these antiretroviral drugs cocktails. Even now, a cocktail cannot cure HIV or AIDS, but it can control that replication. And that gives your immune system vital time to recover and strengthen. So we're in a good spot there, especially compared to the 80s. Uh, but we're still trying to figure out the origin story of HIV. And we wanted to give you the official version as it stands now in 2020. So the official version of how HIV reached humans was that there were hunters somewhere out in the bush and the sieve infection that we talked about previously to this, the immune deficiency disease or virus that was affecting apes was transmitted to humans when they killed somehow and then probably in some way consumed the chimpanzees or possibly when these hunters, you know, you're going through, let's say, um, a jungle, a very thick bush area, you're getting small cuts on your arms or your legs or something, then blood comes out of a chimpanzee when it is killed, and somehow that blood gets into one of those cuts, and then the virus begins to mutate from there. Yeah, the thing is that people have been getting sieve for a long, long time, pretty often, but every so often, every blue moon, this sieve that was in their body would evolve and it would adapt to live in its new environment, the human host. And this is the ascendancy of HIV-1. There are four main groups of HIV strains and they each have a slightly different makeup genetically. And this is interesting because it supports the scientist hunter theory because they're saying, hey, these different versions exist because every time sieve passed from a chimp to a human, it mutated independently in a different way and produced a slightly different strain. There are things there that we should also mention there's HIV-2. Uh, that comes from sieve inside a type of monkey rather than a chimpanzee. And we think it happened in a similar way, but it's much rarer and it's less infectious. So as a result, you don't see as many people infected. It's nowadays found mainly in some West African countries, Mali, Mauritania, Nigeria, Sierra Leone. But check this out. So we said the 1980s, right? How far back does it go? The first verified case of HIV is from a blood sample taken in 1959 from a guy who was living in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And that's probably not the first one. That's just the first case for which we have a verifiable tested blood sample. It, it probably happened before then. Um, as a matter of fact, we're 98% plus certain that it did. So right now, that's the current theory, the hunter theory. That's one people accept. Studies concluded the first transmission of sieve to HIV in humans probably occurred in the early 20th century, right? Think the teens, 1920 or so. Uh, but we see evidence of this 
in the Democratic Republic of Congo because that's where HIV strains have the most genetic diversity. And from what we know, that means that Civ transformed into HIV multiple times in this area. It's also home of many of the first reported cases. So there you have it, right? That's the official that's the official theory. That's what if you ask an expert in the field, that's probably what they're going to tell you. Yeah, it, it is the prevailing theory, but it is certainly not the only thing you are going to hear if you just go around and start asking everybody about HIV and AIDS. And in fact, millions of people across the world are convinced that for some reason, in some way, the United States government or some faction within had a hand in creating this virus, creating this disease. Why would they do that? Well, allegedly, it's because of something called Operation Infection. Infection spelled with a K. And we'll tell you all about that after a word from our sponsor. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. (laughs) You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. 
It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way. Knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Here's where it gets crazy. Put aside, for the moment, any questions about whether the United States actually did or did not somehow manufacture HIV. Instead, let's explore how this idea evolved, how it became so popular in the world of conspiracy. The answer is simply this. It's one thing. It's Operation Infection. Like you said, Matt, with a K, which makes it sound way cooler. Uh, (laughs) But okay, so you introduced us to this concept, but what is Operation Infection? Well, it has several other names, by the way, we should just mention here. There's Forward 2. There's Operation Denver. Uh, by the way, forward to, you may also find uh, Vorwarts, V-O-R-W-A-R-T-S, too. Uh, you'll, you'll find that if you begin searching around. Um, this operation, Infection, it was just a classic KGB move. One of these disinfo productions, you know, disinformation. We've talked about it before on this show. And it bears all the hallmarks of their objectively top-notch approach to information warfare. And when you start diving into this, you're just, you, you, it's weird. I, this feels very callous, but you begin to, after seeing this for so, you know, so many times, you begin to have an appreciation of it in some weird way of like, oh, okay, guys, I see you. I see what you're doing, but let's just jump into this. I, and I, that sounds callous, but I promise I, I don't mean it that way. No, uh, the no, Russian government. Okay, the Russian government has been doing this for a long, long time, way before the rise of HIV. Oh yes, yeah, they have. You know, it's the thing. It's it's like you got to respect the hustle. You know what I mean? Like they put the work in, they put the time in. Uh, the the idea that you one can labor for ten thousand hours on something and then become a genius is a myth. Uh, but this, you could tell that the practice made perfect here. Uh, they they didn't just come up with information warfare in the eighties. Uh, the first office 
entirely dedicated to propaganda and disinfo on the Russian side and um, possibly in the world is older than the KGB itself. In 1923, the GPU, it's the predecessor to the KGB, kind of like how the OSS here in the States is the predecessor to the CIA. Anyway, in 1923, the GPU was already rolling along full steam ahead. And uh, the etymology of the word disinformation itself proves how far into the game these folks were. Oddly enough, you know, Russian and English, very different languages, but by the rise of the Second World War, the the word disinformation had been invented independently in both Russian and English to describe information warfare. And when the KGB got into the game, when they became a real thing officially in the 1950s, this meant that disinformation was already a, a tremendously important tool in their active measures doctrine. Active measures, by the way, is just a euphemism. Think of it more like the art of political warfare. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they were linking media manipulation, the front groups that we've talked about before. They were counterfeiting documents and currency. And then, of course, even um, when it was necessary, or I guess maybe when they had a bad day, uh, they would practice wet work, assassinations. Yeah. This kind of thing a lot of times feels like a smokescreen so that other operations can occur, right? So you can mislead your opponent in some way into believing one thing when you're actually doing another. And if you do it effectively enough, you can still do the one thing because your opponents will think that you are trying to deceive them by talking or putting information about out about the one thing. It's, it's, it's fascinating. The uh, the game involved with all of this, the the game that they play with lives across the world is fascinating, if not horrifying. So um, let, let's talk about the Cold War. Uh, throughout all of it, the you know the the Soviets really just excelled in creating tension between their opponents and their friends. So the the opponent's friends, right? Does that make sense? The the allies, the the people who are supposed to be on one side, but if you can foment some kind of tension between those allies, they are no longer as strong as they once were. And in particular, they love this thing called quote black propaganda. And this was crafting making up really damaging stuff, uh, information that we would be put out about an ally, let's say, which purported to be from an ally, right? So if Russian propaganda would exist and it would look as though, let's say, England was putting out some information about the United States when in fact it is actually a Soviet uh, message, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, even for a microcosmic example, you could imagine... Let's just take uh, let's just take Matt, Noel, and Ben, and say like we'll, we'll pick one of one of those podcasters to be Russia. Then they, if they wanted to um, break down cooperation between the other two, then they would say they wouldn't say, "Hey, I think this about I, I think this person thinks this about you." They would say, "Hey, I got this. I recovered this, and it's about you." I wanted to share it with you. The Russians did this on a global level. Uh, one example would be Operation Neptune. In 1994, they attempted to use these forged documents to imply that Western politicians had supported the Nazis. But the important part here, the twist, is that they didn't say they were declassified Soviet documents. 
they came from somewhere else and the Russians happened to find them, or excuse me, the Soviet government happened to find them. And so now it was ethical to spread this sort of thing. And, and to, um, cause really it, it's an attack. It just doesn't use bullets. And there, there are a lot of other cases too, like the USSR was working actively, of course, during this cold war, right? They're working actively to discredit the U S government internationally. Not that it always needed a lot of help with that and to discredit it to its domestic population. Again, not that it always needed much help with that either. Um, I don't want to sound too cynical. We just have to remember, like, during this time, uh, there were massive domestic protests, right? Uh, there, there was a lot of unhappiness in the international sphere regarding unilateral actions of the United States. So there's a pretty compelling chicken or the egg argument, right? Was, uh, were these programs stoking flames that already existed? Or were they starting new fires? But they did things like, oh, evidence emerged that the U.S. supports apartheid, uh, things like that. And so in the early days of the AIDS crisis, the KGB saw a golden once in an intelligence agency's lifetime kind of opportunity. Yeah. Around the year 1983, there is, I guess, one of the first known examples that you can kind of point to when you're looking through this stuff. Uh, there was an Indian pro-Soviet paper. It carried an anonymous letter from a, quote, well-known American scientist. Huh. Oh, okay. Oh, well-known American scientist, obviously. And this person who was quoted in this paper claimed that AIDS had been developed in a secret bio lab in Fort Detrick within the United States. And, of course, you know, you begin there with, with a little seed, basically, right? Um, right. Some, and we can't, this we, scientist... Yeah, that we can't we, verify. <laughs> because it would put their life at risk. Exactly. Um, so you've got that little seed in 1983. Then, only two years later, 1985, there's a retired biophysicist named Dr. Jacob Siegel. He claims that the AIDS virus was synthesized by combining parts of other viruses, uh, retroviruses, in this case, the VISNA, or VISNA, and the HTLV1. And... You know, we we talked about how the Soviets were using, again, not unlike the United States or any other large power, they were using fronts to report, like uh, fronts where they could kind of seed um, a story in or something, and then those fronts would report on that story. So they would, all these fronts all over the world started reporting about this thing. They would talk about the Siegel Report, this person who has come forward to let us know about the AIDS virus and how it was created rather than how it had evolved. Yeah. And, and uh, here's, here's an example. We don't have to read this whole excerpt, but we wanted to sum up what it's saying so you get a sense of it. This doctor, this uh, retired biophysicist you mentioned, Matt Siegel, in his report, which was treated kind of like the way... Um, well, anytime politically you hear a report and it's just the name of the report is the last name of someone, kind of like the Mueller report, oh, that's not science. Uh, anytime you hear that, it's it's kind of a currency created. It's a nickname created so that people can circulate it more easily and it's super recognizable because that's the rule of media, right? Make it one or two words, preferably. Yep. So the, uh, the Siegel report says, no relation to Steven Seagal, by the way, unfortunately, says, quote, it's very easy using genetic technologies to unite two parts of completely independent viruses. But who would be interested in doing this? The military, of course. 
And then they say in 1977, a top security lab was set up at the Pentagon Central Biological Laboratory. And then one year after that, the first cases of AIDS occur in the U.S. in New York City. So the timeline then implies 1978. Uh, How it occurred, how it managed to get out of the secret hush-hush laboratory is easy to understand. And they say this following, quote, Everyone knows that prisoners are used for military experiments in the U.S. They're promised their freedom if they come out of the experiment alive. Interesting. Now, we should note that Siegel himself, Dr. Jacob Siegel, was presented as a French researcher, but he was definitely, he was a German guy. They were just trying to sort of make it one more remove from the Soviet government. And unfortunately, there's some truth in some of these statements. U.S. does have secret biolabs. The U.S. did experiment on prisoners. Like, none of that stuff was made up. Just this instance of that happening. Yeah. And, you know, the report blew up, at least for back in the day. Uh, it, It couldn't go viral on the internet because it wasn't really, you couldn't do that yet. But it did go viral as far as coverage and rumor and uh, people talking about this. By 1987, it received coverage in 80 countries, in 30 languages, this Siegel report. And that spread, it just, it followed this fashion that we've seen before. It's something that continues, that we, you know, kind of continue to see. But well, let's, let's just keep going here. Uh, the story appeared in a publication from outside the USSR, right? So it's not us. It's just, it's over there, right? Uh, then it was presented as... Um, investigative work within so uh, the Soviet media, right? So it's like we, um, we're investigating this thing, this report that's been out there that now we're looking at. Uh, <laughs> look what we found, right? Right, right. Look at this. Look what we found. Uh, it, it's crazy, right? But we feel it is our ethical duty to report it. Uh, and furthermore, you know, join us in asking why the United States won't answer these strong and disturbing allegations. And this is a smear tactic that you've seen probably in, in the world of celebrity as well, where it's like, you know, I, I, I didn't say it, but some people say, okay, who's our celebrity we pick on today, Matt? Uh, let's go with uh, Paul Rubens. No, no. Nope. No, oh. um, Conan O'Brien. Conan O'Brien. Oh man. Okay. All right. So this hypothetical example, and I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry, Mr. Rubens, that you lost to Conan here. Uh, in this hypothetical example, uh, you would see something in the media like, "Well, I, you know, I didn't say it. But there are a lot of reports. There, are, some people are saying and have been saying that uh, Conan O'Brien." Uh, breaks into preschools and steals children's shoes and that he's he's using them to decorate a wall of a, of, of his attic. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying it's true. I'm saying a lot of people are saying it, but I think it's interesting that he's never denied the allegation. And you know what? Earwolf won't even come out and talk about it. Have you noticed that? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like, well... Why aren't they responding? Um, and this is disturbing because, you know, it works really well if people are already, if they already have some pre-existing beliefs, right? If someone, for some terrible reason, ever watched Conan O'Brien, who is a fantastic guy, and thought, yeah, a guy looks, he looks like he steals shoes. 
And they especially they, kids' shoes. Yeah, they heard that report. They would be like, "Wow, he never, he never denied it. I knew it. I knew <laughs> I was right." And we're we're having fun with that example, but the the mechanics are sound. That happens all the time. Uh, the the Soviet Party also focused special attention on the continent of Africa, and Radio Moscow which is pretty much exactly like Voice of America or something, Radio Moscow said the U.S. was deliberately infecting people with disease under the guise of free vaccination projects. Uh, and there, there's you know tremendous distrust of vaccination projects in uh, a, a lot of the world, especially when they're sponsored by Western powers or Western pharmaceutical companies. That's a story for another day, though, because there's some sand to it, in my opinion. I don't know if you agree with me there. Uh, yeah, actually. Yeah, there's some sand to it. Uh, okay, so we've got to write that episode down for the future. Uh, but we're we're going to take a, a pause. We'll ha- have a word from our sponsor. And when we return, we're going to see what happened to Operation Infection. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. (laughs) You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, 
personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think, it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way. Knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. So just to be clear, what was the purpose of Operation Infection? We understand the strategy of this conspiracy, and it is a conspiracy, and it was effective, but like what was the what was why why were they doing this that's a great question because on the surface it doesn't seem to make a ton of sense but if you look at a bigger picture it does appear to have two purposes the first one is just to discredit the united states in any way that they could um, and to you know make the united states uh, civilians within the united states maybe feel a, just a little bit more, if not a lot bit more, worried that their government isn't telling them the truth. And the second purpose there is to shift attention away from Russia's own very real chemical and bioweaponry research, the real scary stuff that was happening in Russian research laboratories and the United States laboratories and probably a bunch of other places too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well said. And... This leads us to a, another question. An elephant in the room here, an elephant in the red room here is, how do we know about this today? It was so top secret, right? How did we figure this out? Are we secretly Russian disinfo agents? Well, there is a tragic turn of events that leads to the revelation of this. Here's what happens. Russia was actually really successful convincing people across the planet that HIV was not only manufactured, uh, but that the U.S. was responsible. And part of the reason they were so successful is because they didn't make up the disease itself. It was and is a real medical condition. And it was spreading unchecked. And eventually, the bill came due. The disease arrived on Russian soil. So in the mid to late 1980s, Soviet researchers are asking their American colleagues for help 
fighting this virus. Their request gets denied. Not only is it denied, but their American colleagues say, look, we're not going to help you at all and we'll never help you unless you stop this disinformation operation. At which point, you know, of course, the Soviet researchers are like, hey, I'm, I'm not in charge of that. That's the, the, that's the, you know, that's the KGB. I, I check samples. I don't know how much policy influence you think I have. Uh, but they were at an impasse. And the Gorbachev administration tried to prevent the U.S. from exposing this, right, from tracing these things like the Seagal Report back to uh, its ultimate uh, creators in the USSR. Uh, but HIV infections continued to grow in Russia and or in the Soviet Union, excuse me. And eventually the Gorbachev administration disowns the project entirely in 1987. But only two years, only two years after that report, the Seagull report. Right, right. So it blew up and then it collapsed. But people didn't admit what was going on for uh, a few more years. That's right. It wasn't until 1992 that Yevgeny Primakov, he was at the time the director of the Foreign Intelligence Service, he came forward, he confirmed for everyone that the KGB had in fact created and perpetuated this myth. They Their hands were all over it. And, you know, again, 1992 is quite a while, like seven years after that initial report. But still, it is so strange to think about how many minds were touched by this concept and how it spread both on a wide arena, but then also, you know, within small communities kind of whispering to each other because this wasn't, this isn't the kind of thing you just go out and you just start telling everyone. And it was, I, and I, I imagine that it was known it would be a whisper campaign after the initial push, or at least it feels that way. Um, it really is fascinating to think about this being orchestrated, though. Yeah, word of mouth for it, for almost anything. Word of mouth is such a powerful medium of transmission, and it's a powerful medium of belief. As human beings, you know, most of us are driven to seek um, harmony of some sort with our peer groups. And part of the way we seek harmony with each other is through agreeing on things. It's a different drive. Like there are some who only want to, um, I guess, feel like they're they're dominating a social circle. But most people tend to want to seek harmony through being able to look at their close associates and friends and say, yeah, not only do we know what's going on, but we all agree on it. You know what I mean? So if someone you like or is cl are close to is telling you something, depending on how they tell it to you, you're going to eventually start to shift toward their ideology. It's fascinating. I agree. Fascinating is the right word because what we found here is Operation Infection, whatever you want to call it, is a genuine conspiracy to create a fake conspiracy. It's like it's a Matryoshka doll of schemes within schemes. And I, I love that you brought up uh, the the sh the very short span of time that elapsed here, but here's the thing: even after these people are like caught red-handed, 1990s, uh, the government officially admits it was a thing, but the damage was already done. Because another thing about our species is we like our incorrect, like our red meat headlines and sensational stuff. We like it big slapped on the front page in a headline maybe with some exclamation marks i don't know we'll style on it we'll see how it feels in the print shop 
but we save the corrections for like the back of page 12, two weeks later, because no one reads them. And no one really wants to, you know what I mean? You got the headline, you got your opinion, you're pretty much done. As we said in the U.S., this virus was predominantly affecting, in the early days, was predominantly affecting, as far as the experts could see, uh, African-American communities and people in LGBT communities. These two groups have been historically discriminated against and victimized. So it is a damning condemnation of American society that this idea didn't seem impossible. You know, people would look around and say, well, think about all the other things the government has done to attack these communities in the past. We know those things happened and we know that science keeps evolving at a breakneck pace. So, and it's kind of like shrug.gif. Yeah, it, uh, it definitely seemed to make sense, especially at the time, given the past. You're right. I mean, you you could almost imagine it being, oh, well, hey, this disease was created by the government to wipe these populations out, basically. You, could, you can imagine why people would at least be open to that idea. Um, and, and the other big problem here was that, you know, at, at the time, the presidential administration, the, the whole White House structure – if you will, all of the people there, they were not tackling it head on. It, you know, it was a known thing, especially if you were living in one of the communities, communities that was being ravaged by the, by HIV and AIDS, it was very much well known and it was a terrifying thing, but there wasn't, it didn't feel like a ton was being done about it. And there really wasn't much being done about it at the time, at least early on. Yeah, that's a good point because the initial government inactivity was, you know, if you're coming from that space, right, you believe in this, then what seems to be a lack of activity in the public sphere on the government's behalf is just another another piece of proof, right, at that point. I mean, people are not, people are not idiotic, right? We have to remember that people, people then are just as smart as people today. Uh, and they have all the same failings and all the same triumphs. So we can we can understand where this is coming from. And this operation infection didn't last that long, but its effects are still with us. A 2005 study published in the Journal of Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome showed that 50% of African-American people surveyed believed that AIDS is, quote, a man-made virus, and 15% uh, thought that it was a form of genocide against against black people in general and like hiv itself this kgb crafted conspiracy theory mutated beyond its original state because it was it was out in the wild you know if you don't already trust the government why would you trust their official statements of any sort right so this it, it, once it gets in the wild once it gets in the field uh this theory that the u.s made hiv uh, starts to mix with other things, even things that seem kind of contradictory, like uh, AIDS denialism, which was huge at the time. You know, it was like it's a misunderstood uh, thing, sort of like 5G and COVID nowadays, I would say, for a parallel. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Just because there wasn't enough, people didn't have enough working information or working knowledge of it, it, it felt as though it couldn't be real or it was not real. And there, there were so many other stories still today, actually, that uh roll around about the origins of HIV and AIDS and i think it is one of those things that once you have enough 
Once you can get enough people to question the official story, then all of the other stories out there begin to be a possibility uh, for someone who's already disbelieving. Um, I don't know. It, it just... Yeah. It makes sense, and you can kind of see it at work with so many things in, in now, like in today's zeitgeist of just our disbelief at official stories or disbelief of official stories. Yeah, yeah, 100% agreed. And there you have it, you know. That is why people genuinely believe the U.S. government created HIV. It tragically jibes with past atrocities. It mixed with other adjacent or existing conspiracies, and some of the world's foremost experts on information warfare just pushed it through. And again, I I, I hate to say it, but just objectively, if you look at the at the structure that they they implemented, uh, their hustle is top notch, as you said. I mean, today it is important to remember there are still unanswered questions about HIV, but it is luckily no longer a death sentence, and scientists are working continually to improve the treatments available. Yeah, and if you look on the other side of that coin, you realize that disinfo agents, masters, people who've been doing this for a long time, they don't stop. Uh, they'll, you know, there's a project that may end or one campaign that may end, but the people who are very good at this will continue to be doing this. And they do because they, every time they attempt a campaign, you learn a little something about how well it worked, how well it didn't work, what, and what you can take away from it. And things like operation infection can then get applied to something new. Let's say current events. Let's talk about the 2020 election that's, you know, about to happen? Well, think about the previous election in 2016 and the manipulation that occurred there. You know, um, and there are people here listening that don't believe any kind of manip manipulation occurred. There are people here who a thousand percent know that manipulation occurred from Russia during the 2016 presidential election in the United States. Um, and it is very interesting to see that divide of, you know, our own disbelief or fervent belief in something that either did or didn't happen. <laughs> right, right. And you would think that um you, you would think that the proliferation of instantaneous communication, social media and the internet would finally smash all the you know relatively like disgusting gatekeeping of information sources that existed beforehand, but unfortunately that is not the case. Make no mistake. 1950, 1980, that was nothing. We are in the golden age of information warfare. And things like this, just like uh, you've heard experts predict uh, pandemics in the future, this is another kind of global situation. There will be more things like Operation Infection. They will get better. Just like in the Terminator movies when the first androids were easy to spot, these new Propaganda projects are going to get closer and closer to seeming like the real thing. The difference, the important difference is that they are not real. They are being used to uh, control you, to make you comply with the uh, behaviors you would not accept, or to make you do things you ordinarily wouldn't do. And on that note, we have to ask for your help, fellow conspiracy realists, what are other propaganda operations, proven or alleged, that you think your fellow listeners should learn more about? And you may be asking yourselves, hey, guys, how do you even know that Operation Infection was real, an actual disinformation campaign? Well, 
it's an in, it's interesting that you ask that because one of the main reasons I believe it is true is because on the CIA.gov website there is an entry about it. There are some materials you can look at. So if you search Operation Infection on CIA.gov, you can see that. Now, th- I'm just going to use my own logic here. Why why would the CIA want to put out information about a propaganda campaign from an opposing at least at the time, an opposing superpower. Hmm. Now my wheels are turning even further. I hadn't thought about it in this way until we started this episode. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm on the but, edge uh, of my seat. What is it? Just the concept that the CIA would want you to think that Russia is putting out all kinds of disinformation campaigns or the Soviet Union at the time. Um, so that maybe you don't think about or you dismiss the United States originating propaganda campaigns that are going around to disinformation campaigns. Um, yeah, I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, I'm just trying to figure out where I am within the, the net of <laughs> propaganda. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, it, it makes, like, for a visual analogy, it makes me think of maybe uh, two s- street musicians on opposite sides of the street or on stages that are facing one another. And they're both trying to get attention from the same audience uh, or they're trying to direct attention from the same audience. Like, look what that Joker is doing. Don't Mm -hmm. look at what my hands are doing. You know what I mean? (laughs) Um, Yeah. 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 Oh, wow. That's, that's depressing, which means it's it's probably has a seed of truth in it. Right. (laughs) Hey, but you can also find it on the guardian and New York times and on, you know, the website. Yeah, New York Times has a beyond. good video. Mm-hmm. I have a video you series can, you on You can it. learn about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we want to... Hey, if you think Operation Infection was a hoax, think it's a CIA cover-up for the truth, let us know too. Uh, we would always rather learn the truth than be comfortable feeling right about something. You know what I mean? Uh, Absolutely. So, so you can find us, and more importantly, you can find your fellow listeners... Uh, in our communities on Facebook, on Instagram, and on Twitter. We especially love to recommend Here's Where It Gets Crazy uh, over on Facebook, where you can hang out with us and some of the best mods in the moderating business. So shout out to you all as well. That's right. All you need to know is, uh, I think, the host names still, and you can get in and start talking about all the episodes, suggest some new ones, post some memes, whatever you want to do. It's fun. And, you know, we always say, Yes, name name one or all of the hosts, but uh, if if you would like, you can just make us laugh. That'll probably get you in. Absolutely, people have been following that uh, that direction in our voicemail messages that they've been leaving us. You mm-hmm. can right now call our number. It is one eight three three S T D W Y T K. You can leave up to a three minute message. Um, and I am very happy to report that both Ben and I will be listening for sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, Noel also has the information now too. So we might all be listening to your messages and you might get a call. You might just, uh, uh, just know that your words will enter our ears. <laughs> oh, oh, <laughs> that sounds uh, weird. Uh, Matt, I'd like to do an impromptu shout out. If yes, possible. please. Okay. I would like to give a shout out to Matthew B., you know who you are, Matthew B., uh, who uh, called in to say that uh, one of his uh, other favorite conspiracy shows has a has a host named Matthew. 
uh, and and one has a host named uh, Ben, and he thinks it is a conspiracy, not a conspiracy theory, but a conspiracy that he has something, some things in common with us name wise. Do you remember that one? I do remember that one. Yes, <laughs> Matt so, and Ben. He's like, oh, which oh, Matt and Ben? Okay, yeah. That's really great. Uh, also had somebody calling in asking about the squirrel population and coronavirus. Uh, I don't know if you got to hear that one yet, Ben, but it was a very adamant listener asking about whether or not the squirrels, I think it's around the Chicago area, were for some reason being affected by coronavirus because they uh, this person hadn't seen any squirrels all spring. Oh, wow. Um I haven't been able to find anything, but if you out there are listening and you have some information about squirrels and where they're where they are right now, <laughs> let us know. They're here in Atlanta. I'm, I was looking at some earlier today in my backyard, but you know, who knows? And if you think social media is not the place for that squirrel, you know, for the hard hitting squirrel reporting, if you think that <laughs> uh, a voicemail doesn't give you enough time, you only have three minutes to fully air out your thoughts. Uh, then never worry. We have one way that you can always, always contact us. Rain or shine, uh, collapse of civilization notwithstanding, you can reach us 24-7 at our good old-fashioned email address. We are conspiracy at iheartradio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor. Gene was good. But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. 
Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.